Certainly welcome to join the program there. Hal does this program, obviously, because he wants to talk about his excellent uh, summer camp, that being Camp Constitution in New Hampshire. Um, the um, his uh, You can find out more information about Hal's uh, camp by uh, going to campconstitution.net. And um, I urge you to do it. I mean, it's a great thing to, um, it's a family camp at this point, but also it's a great uh, chance for you and your children to learn about the U.S. Constitution. What could be better than that? What could be more important than that? More importantly, um, I just want to talk a little bit, since we are on the topic, uh, of the U.S. Constitution and why it is so vital and so central to our lives. Um, I've heard the Constitution criticized recently, not in the sense of being bad, but by legitimate people that I actually respect, like, uh, like for example, Mark Levin, the great one, radio talk show host, constitutional lawyer, who is calling for the reconvening of a constitutional convention because he believes that the uh, U.S. government has gone so far outside the Constitution, and he's right about that, of course, that the only way to save it would be to amend it and to do so by going into it like surgeons and restructure aspects of it. Now, first of all, I totally disagree with Mark Levin and his analysis. He lays it out carefully in a book he's written, and he certainly brings up some very important points about how to reform the government, but I don't think it's um, having a constitutional convention is the way to go. I just don't think that, uh, I think it's too dangerous in this day and age. The fact that um, we had such an incredible assemblage of men back in 1788-1789 uh, is almost something that I view as providential. I view that it's almost God was watching us, that he put such great men, such patriots in place, people who had been through the American Revolution and who had been formed by six years of a horrible invasion by the strongest empire in the world, that being Great Britain, and uh, who risked life and limb and property to uh, to secure an independent nation. I mean, these are people who had the intellect and the moral fiber and the character to craft this incredible document. And I just don't think, frankly, that there is anyone alive today, including myself and including anyone that I've interviewed, who is anywhere near remotely in a position where they can be trusted and where they have the ability to to make such incredible changes and that there were too many bad people around now, too many people, even well-meaning people who nevertheless, due to their ignorance, are de facto bad people in that they don't understand the nature and the essence of our constitution and our constitutional system. So to have them tamper with it to open it up like a surgeon and have people who don't know what they're doing, who are, you know, unwitting maybe, plus there are witting, sinister characters who literally want to change it and turn this into another means of governance. It's just too dangerous right now to open up the Constitution to that kind of peril. So as imperfect as our system is today, I believe we have to stand by the Constitution of the United States we have to work to rein our government back into its confines as best we can. And I don't, I'm not a purist. I don't expect complete um, 
return to or you know perfect constitutional government if we ever had it. Uh, but I do think that uh, our job as citizens and our job as sovereign individuals under God is to try to do the best we can to understand the Constitution and to try to rein it in whenever possible. And I'll just point out as a, as a little historical footnote that literally in the first couple of years of the George Washington administration, when the Constitution was first tried out, there were some excesses even then. I mean, Alexander Hamilton did create the first bank of the United States, which uh, was extra constitutional, and he did it under the guise of what he called implied powers. So you already have the precedent set for, uh, you know, powers outside of our, our system. So that's that's just a fact of life. And, and you know, the Constitution itself is not a straitjacket. You know, we can argue these points and, and uh, try to reform them and restrain them and bring them within the bounds of our constitutional approach. But again, I'm not a purist. I don't believe we can completely eliminate them altogether. And um, so we're better off living with what we have and understanding it and moving forward toward a more perfect uh, adherence to the Constitution then we are going to be to simply open the thing up and throw it out with the idea that somehow we're going to craft something that's going to be uh, better just by doing so. To me, that almost borders <clears throat> on uh, on the utopian. And I say that, again, with all due respect to, to Mark Levin and to others who are well-meaning and who are very smart people, but whom I just simply disagree with. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the Constitution itself and one of the basic elements of it that needs to be understood, not just because it's how we govern ourselves as sovereign people, but it also is an interesting reflection on, on human life and, and on the nature of human beings. And that is that the system is based upon a separation of powers a system of checks and balances. And in a sense, that is what we as individuals base our own lives on. It goes back to um, the Aristotelian principle of the golden mean um, and, and of the removal of excess by balancing it with other factors. You know, when we make decisions in our own lives, we balance many factors and we try to determine what is best for our futures or what is best for our present situation with an eye toward the future and with a solid understanding of the past and of experience. This is part of being alive. Animals understand this. And that is a system that in the legal sense is recognized and is codified by the constitution, which didn't invent this. It's part of nature, but codified it, put it in writing, set the parameters of how to balance powers. Now, in the formal sense, what is balancing powers? Well, if you look at the Constitution, it's divided into, it divides powers into three areas, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. And to, before we elaborate on those, again, the basic reason that the founders did this, and it's the most brilliant invention, political invention, I think, ever, 
was because they had a pretty good understanding of human nature. They understood that there is the temptation toward total power, toward excess. There are people who feel they're entitled to exercise greater power over their fellow man because they think they're smarter than the rest of us or because they're just corrupt. There's a lot of reasons. And so recognizing this element of human nature, they understood that powers had to be divided so that number one, they could be diffused. They could not be all gathered in the hands of one person or one clique of people. And secondly, so that they would compete with each other because competition is natural. And so that you would have the different branches. And in the case of our constitution, it's three branches. It's a tricameral government. You would have them competing with each other and checking each other so that when one of the three would step out of line and try to grab at too much power, then one of the other two or both of the other two would come in and they would stop them. They would, it was like a, it's like a, um, it's like a, a, a hockey game in a sense. They would be checked. You know, it's like watching a football game. You have the, uh, the goalposts are determined, the rules are determined, and then everybody has a free-for-all. And the rules were such that they each had their respective powers and responsibilities and that those powers would naturally check and thus balance the other powers. Um, and what are those powers on the federal level, or as the founders called it, the national level? They referred to our government as a national government, not a federal government. They are the executive, the judicial, and the legislative. The executive is the president of the United States, one person elected by an electoral college so that they would represent all regions of the country uh, and that one region would not uh, supersede others. And by the way, that gets into the importance of the electoral college. If we don't have an electoral college, and today it's more relevant than ever, if we don't have an electoral college, then we're going to have all of our presidents elected in Manhattan or in Los Angeles, because that's where most of the people are. It, would, it, it essentially distributed uh, electoral powers to various regions of the country that have various interests and various ways of life so that everyone would have a say and everyone would have a reasonable amount of influence over who became the chief executive. And the powers of the chief executive, the president, are very clearly laid out by the Constitution, and they are basically to defend the Constitution and enforce the laws that are created by the second branch, that is Congress, the legislature. Now, the legislature is the great hall of the people. Uh, it's divided into two branches. The, um, the, the, the House of Representatives is the most direct in terms of representing the interests of the people because they are elected from reasonably small areas in the state proportional to population. So you could have a small state like, like Rhode Island has one congressman. A big state like California has, I think, about 50 congressmen. Depends on the population. They are more accountable to the values and the interests of the people that elect them. Um, that is more, that in a sense, it's more small d democratic. And that they work with others in other regions of the country to craft laws and legislation. 
The other branch, of course, is the Senate, and that traditionally was appointed by the states. You would have two senators for each state, and they would represent the interests of the states so that there would be a balance between federal and state power. Now, that was gotten rid of in the Wilson administration, which I think was a mistake. And thus, the uh, senators who served six-year terms would no longer represent the states. They would come to represent the federal government itself. You know, they're in there for six years, and they don't have to worry about every two years standing for re-election. So they would become federal agents. And that was a step toward unbalancing the balance of powers, in my opinion. But at the whole, the legislative branch um, is responsible for making laws. And the areas upon which they are recognized as constitutionally responsible for making laws is listed in Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution. It's a long list of clauses in terms of areas that they, they are given this responsibility. They have the responsibility to declare war. They have the responsibility to levy taxes. Only the sole responsibility, by the way, to raise money. You know, when you have agencies raising money outside of Congress, there are serious constitutional questions about that because only Congress is authorized to levy taxes, to levy, uh, to uh, engage in, uh, in trade policy. Um, you know, and, and many, many other responsibilities, many, one of which I'll just mention briefly, and that is to uh, coin money and regulate the value, something that was given to the first bank of the United States, unconstitutionally, in my opinion, uh, by, by um, in the Washington administration. And it's a power that continues to be held by the Federal Reserve System, which is not elected, which is not constitutionally authorized, in my opinion, to regulate the value of our money. We, the people, are supposed to regulate the value of our money through our elected representatives in Congress. It's a big issue. It's a complicated issue. It's a fascinating issue. I actually wrote a book about this, um, but it's a little bit beyond the purview of what we have time for today. The third branch of Congress, of, of the government, of the federal government of the Constitution, is the judicial branch, the independent, separate judiciary where you have federal judges and Supreme Court judges appointed for life, who are supposed to operate outside of politics, who are supposed to not be beholden to uh, voters because they're not elected. They are appointed by the executive branch, the president, and then they're approved at, at the advice and consent of the Senate, the uh, legislative branch. But they are there to check both the executive and the legislator to make sure that they are not exceeding their constitutional powers. So they can, you know, you can bring a case that the government is violating your constitutional rights, your right to, for example, any of the uh, ten, uh, any of the amendments, the Bill of Rights or the other amendments, your right to practice your religion, your right to free speech, free press. You know, the right to assembly, the right to redress of grievances, the right to uh, avoid search and seizure, the right to, um, you know, a, a lot of a, a long list of rights. I mean, all of which, by the way, have been in various ways breached over these many centuries. But uh, the Supreme Court is supposed to look at the Constitution and say, 
whether or not your rights are violated based upon the rights recognized by the Constitution. And I should note briefly that the Constitution itself doesn't grant rights. People don't grant rights. Documents don't grant rights. The Founding Fathers understood and believed that rights come from God, you know, or as Jefferson said in the Declaration of Independence, the creator who grants, who uh, is the founder, the originator of inalienable rights, rights that exist in nature, the right to freedom, basically. And that the, the self-governing experiment that has been represented by the U.S. Constitution is one by which more and more people over the centuries have been enfranchised to exercise rights, whether it was abolishing slavery, which, of course, contradicted this, this maxim in, in the most fundamental way. I mean, an individual does not have a right to be owned by I mean, it doesn't have the right to own another individual like you'd own a piece of furniture. You know, an individual, all individuals created in the image of God, as recognized by Jefferson, and it, which comes from the Judeo-Christian understanding, has inalienable and inherent rights, regardless of race, creed, or color. I mean, we don't, you don't have a right to own somebody because they are, look a certain way. That contradicts everything that America is about. It was the great flaw in the Constitution. The Constitution took steps to abolish it by putting in a bill, not in the amendments, but in the actual document, which ended the slave trade by 1808. So they knew that it was an evil system, and they knew that it would eventually have to be abolished. Now, we could get into American history and talk about whether or not there had to be a civil war to abolish it. That's a big subject. It's a separate subject. But suffice it to say that it was abolished after a very, very painful civil war, which caused the deaths of up to upwards of 600,000 people, uh, much more than any of the other American wars combined. The aftermath was the passage of the 13th Amendment, which ended uh, chattel slavery, and which enfranchised African-Americans and anyone else who was enslaved. And since then, we have seen the further enfranchisement of citizens. We've seen women are fully enfranchised. They were the right to vote. Uh, more recently, you see an enfranchisement of, uh, of gays and lesbians. I mean, we, we, we have generally in this country, younger people, the voting age was lower to 18. You know, it's been a long experiment in further enfranchising individual rights. Um, and, uh, and, you know, a lot of that is, in a sense, a response to our development as, uh, as a society and, and a development of social mores. You know, I mean, I suppose in the time of the founding of the republic, it was seen as acceptable, and we don't think of it today, but that the only people that would be fully enfranchised and that would be allowed to vote would be white men of a certain age and who owned property. They were enfranchised. Now, we can take a look at this. The left likes to look at this as a glass half empty and point an accusatory finger and say, you see, America was oppressive. But the fact is that it was actually a glass half full because even though it was a limited franchise, it was a far greater franchise than any society in the world had ever known because up until that point, you had 
divine right of kings in Europe and in ancient Rome and going way back, where the king and his entourage and his immediate family and his friends by fiat and by favor were the only ones who had any rights at all. And that everyone else basically simply existed as subjects of the king. I mean, even in England and today, they, they refer, people are referred to as subjects, not citizens. So the idea of a citizen who derives his or her rights under God and that are inherent, that was a radical and even revolutionary change. And in the case of America, it was a change closer to what is best in human nature, not a change away from it. So we should be grateful. I certainly am grateful. We all are grateful. We may take it for granted sometimes. But uh, but that's, you know, that, that's what our system is based on. And the Supreme Court is there to make sure that the other branches are not exceeding their powers. Now, the system of checks and balances actually is much more profound than that. The system of checks and balances also is the balance between the federal government and the states. That was understood at the time of the founding. We need to understand that today in that, the, and it's, it's codified in the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, that the power is not specifically granted to the federal government reside with the states and with the people. And thus the states have sovereign powers. They are independent in a sense, even though they're part of the union. And that was a question that was answered after the Civil War, by the way, in case anyone's thinking about seceding from the union. And I, I'm a union guy here, so <clears throat> I support that. But the states have sovereign rights and that those sovereign rights balance federal power. And then the states basically mimicked to varying degrees and with, with various variations, the federal system of balance in that you have a governor, you have state legislator making laws, and you have usually a state judiciary watching the store in terms of um, excesses by the other two. And then you have a further diminution into counties and cities and towns, which also have separations of powers within their governments and that their governments check and balance state governments and federal governments. Um, in fact, uh, traditionally in the United States, the top law enforcement officer in the land is the county sheriff. Um, you know, that's really where the buck used to stop in terms of law enforcement. And it's not that they don't work with other sheriffs. And, you know, the FBI, which was created at the end of World War One to deal with uh, a communist uh, extreme movement that, that was bombing the homes of important officials around the country. They coordinated this on June 9, 1919. And the response was that the Wilson administration set up the FBI and appointed J. Edgar Hoover as the head of it. Now their job then, and um, we can talk about what's happened, but I'm talking about their, their, their assumed function was not to enforce laws, but to investigate and to aid in local sheriffs and local police in enforcing the law. Because there are sometimes crimes that are national in nature, like, like the mafia or like uh, organized crime, or there are crimes that are political in nature, like the communist movement 
or the Nazi movement. So, you know, there was a reason to have a national investigative um, entity, except that their powers, again, were to be limited away from actual police power. That was supposed to be handled by the local officials with their help after they finished their investigations. Um, so you have many layers of checks and balances. Federal uh, divided into three. States divided into three, checking the federal. Local divided and checking the states and federal. And then you have the, the Bill of Rights and the amendments of the Constitution, which in the only in the only in the most basic sense, recognize the greatest of all balances in government. And that is the balance between the sovereign individual under God balancing government power. And that is expressed in the Bill of Rights. The right to free speech, free press, free expression, redress of grievances, the right to assemble, these are individual rights that balance and check government power. The Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms, that is an individual right, and that is essential to balancing potential police powers if they are assumed by the government. Um, and I just will, let me just uh, pontificate a little on that, because that's obviously in the news. And that is that um, the, the uh, amendment says a well-regulated militia. Now, some people on the left really think that uh, conservatives ignore the fact that it calls for a well-regulated militia. Not at all. What was a well-regulated militia? At the time of the founding of the Republic, a well-regulated militia was all men over the age of 18, I think, or maybe even been 16, who were law-abiding citizens and who were not criminals, didn't have a criminal record. That was the natural system in a sense of both gun control and gun ownership. That if you were a responsible citizen, and obviously the franchise has been extended to women and rightfully, of course, you had the right to keep and bear arms. Now, that didn't mean you had a right to keep a cannon, which was, I suppose, in its day, the equivalent of today's, you know, submachine gun or or bomb, or hand grenades, or military-style weaponry. No, that could be regulated. That was not something that, um, you know, was necessarily, you know, you had necessarily had a right to. But you had a right to keep arms, and, and the degree of that, and, and the nature of those, those were things that were left up to the local sheriffs, the local police, and maybe the states, not the federal government. So, that is a very fundamental aspect of our system of checks and balances. I think I'm pretty much reaching toward the end of the time here. So um, anyway, I just want to wrap up by saying that um, our Constitution works. We should preserve, protect, and defend our Constitution of the United States. I urge people to carry a copy around with them, read it. It could be understand understood by a high school age student, it's plainly written, it's clear, its meanings are clear and mostly unambiguous. There are some ambiguities in there, but those are things that again, uh, are decided by 
are legislatures and the, even can be addressed by the Constitution itself, which presents a system by which to do so. And I think that if you develop a constitutional way of thinking, a constitutional reflex, if you will, I remember the late Dr. Samuel Blumenfeld used to talk about a phonetic reflex that you develop in order to read properly. And I totally agree with that. That's a great topic for another day. Um, but, but we're talking here, I'm talking about a constitutional reflex. Reflex, not reflux, that's my problem. Um, a constitutional reflex is to look at issues in the news, look at politics, and know, gee, is that constitutional or not? If so, why? If not, why? This is not a bad thing to do. It's not a bad thing to have as a natural way of understanding politics, because if you do, we're going to have more hope toward freedom, more hope toward independence, more hope toward sovereignty, prosperity, and peace going forward. Anyway, I want to thank you all for watching. Again, I want to remind you that uh, Hal Shirtliff is the host. I'm filling in today. This is Chuck Morse. You can find out about me on YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel, Chuck Morse, Morse like as in Morse code. Hal Shirtliff will be back uh, for the next episode. And of course, Hal's website is Camp Constitution, uh, Camp Constitution Radio. Check out campconstitution.net. And uh, I want to thank Hal again for uh, giving me the opportunity. And I want to thank you all for listening this afternoon. Have a good day, everybody.